All right, here we are. We're live. Here we are. Well, I've enough of your fanciness has rubbed off on me that I decided to sprinkle a little bit of chocolate on top of my decaf tonight. A little bit of chocolate, like a like a cappuccino. Yeah. Are you having it with foamy milk? Does that mean? No, nah, I'm still not that fancy yet. Give me a chance. No. What happens? <laughs> with, what happens to the chocolate? Does it just sink? <laughs> it just kind of turns the top a darker brown, and then like you just drink it straight off, melts straight okay. in. It's Is very it nice? nice. Yeah. All right. Maybe I will have to try that sometime. Keeping it classy with the instant. Welcome, folks, to the Affix Podcast, bringing the comments section of your favorite blog straight to your ears. We love to talk about all the writings of the modern intelligentsia straight from the internet, as well as doing the proper Australian thing and betting on just about everything. Someone in a meeting this week actually busted out the quote that, like, Australians are the most bettiest people in the world. Bet on two flies crawling up a wall. Apparently, there's some truth to that claim. There you go. People, people running all your prediction markets. Come to Australia. We're on it. Oh, yeah. Big time. And, of course, rounding out every episode with a discussion of what's going on in Diablo 2, the game first released by Blizzard Entertainment in the year 2000. So futuristic. The 2000. Your Diablo 2 is rubbing off on me. <laughs> it's now uh, giving me recommendations of random Diablo 2 stuff on my YouTube. <laughs> You've permeated it somehow. Amazing. That's pretty great. I kind of watch them. They're fun. <laughs> What did I get? I got like the most random recommendation ever. I th- it was about like cleaning teeth or something today. I'm like, what? Important, I guess. Definitely spicing up my YouTube algorithm, that's for sure. So, as with every episode, we like to open up with a bit of feedback to ourselves. You know, looking back at what we talked about last time, as well as even further back and maybe some feedback from our listeners. I've got a few notes for myself, predominantly talking about our discussion last time on Mark Andreessen's interview with Noah Smith. Good interview. But a couple of other side notes as well. So going straight into that feedback, I was thinking overall about like software management technologies. And I said in the last episode, software might have an advantage in terms of like the way they do business, having operations be focused around ticket systems, around using JIRA boards, that kind of stuff, and being very yep. modern in how to manage things to a, a task-focused outcome, I suppose, rather than a just do the work outcome, Yep. like spend the time. Particularly for knowledge work. Yep. Yeah, definitely for knowledge work. And then I thought about it from the user experience and I'm like, but ticketing systems suck. <laughs> like, just to, as the person who raises the ticket, as a user experience, they're usually pretty bad. Like you raise a ticket yeah. and it's just kind of goes into the void. And sometimes you hear that something's going to happen out of it. Sometimes it doesn't you usually get like just an auto response. And that you compare that to the usual user experience that you had before ticketing systems. And it's just like, you'd go and talk to the person who knew computers, like who worked in your IT department, if you were lucky enough to have them on site. And they'd say, yeah, yeah, I can probably squeeze that in for you. I'll do you a solid. And you'd be like, sweet, I got ahead of the line. I'm real, really satisfied. Or they'd say, I'm sorry, I'm just like really flat out right now. I can't deal with it. Can you just email me and I'll get back to you later? And you're like, cool, I understand it. You're a person. Let's relate as people. And it's a nicer user experience, but it is a worse management experience because you're less likely to be able to actually prioritize the right tasks and get the best outcomes for the business. And it's kind of just like another one of those like little things where 
things that are more effective and efficient in the world are less human. That is that is a very interesting point. You've reduced the humanity of it, but like, you know, you're a capitalist, rugged individualist manager, blah, blah, blah. Who's the better person to prioritize an IT worker's time? Is it the most charismatic customer that we have or is it their boss? Exactly. Like, it's all trade-offs. It's just, it's funny how... Yeah, from the user experience side, it's just like, it's another one of those alienating things, I suppose, that just happen in the world. And it's probably for the best, but people will sure wins about it without thinking about those second order effects. Yeah. I mean, it, it's slightly different in the ticketing system where you're building something new as well, because all my tickets are raised by my boss, basically. Like yep. They'll come up with a plan of we're going to support Google Authenticator next quarter or whatever it is we're going to do. So they get good visibility of the ticket because they're writing it and they're my boss and they can ask me to do it. Yeah. I guess I'm seeing it more and more as those kind of tools permeate the general management experience like we use microsoft to do because it's plugged into teams and we use a lot of teams these days oh really and that's pretty handy for doing checklists and stuff like that and there's a lot of automation features you can do to just upload to like bulk checklists and that kind of thing which is pretty cool too so i'm getting more and more could you see a ticketing system working in like a strategic uh, management accounting type role where you split up you know the next report that we have to do for x is on the state of the mattress market in the westernmost states of the US sort of thing and like then the manager goes through and right okay that means we need to know the numbers of sales in each state and we need to know their prospects we need to know what all the targets are blah 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 do you think that kind of splitting a ticket up system would work it could definitely work and I could see it working in fact it might actually be more effective like the way I think through it is in those strategic roles that I've worked in I haven't Mm. worked in like professional consulting I've worked in top four accounting firms, but not in a consulting wing. Generally, in my experience in strategy roles, you're hiring people who are smart enough to just come up with those lists yourself. And the manager of those people is just going, here's a area to look at, look at it for me and come back with something like a good pitch or something like that. But if you could actually think about it and break it out and be like, okay, I need to look at sales of X, need to look at the category growth of Y, need to look at the penetration of Z, so on and so forth. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to like just ticket it out. Yeah, I mean, that's how the tickets work. Like, you know, in some of our projects, there's one big ticket that someone senior will take on that will be the bulk of it. But then, you know, add this to the website and then add this to the API and then add extra bits over here. All of these are like little bits that anyone can do. So if you're at a loose end because your ticket's waiting for reviews or you're in pre-prod or you're just finished with the previous work, anyone can pick up the next bit. It doesn't have to rely on, uh, whoops, we split the work. So it was actually 70-30 between these two analysts and Mr. 30 over there is like chilling and Mr. 70 is stressed (laughs) out of his brain. It's much easier for me to take over sort of my teammates' work, as you want to call it, because yep. uh, it's all just the team's work and it's all because it's broken down into something that can be done in about a week or less. Yeah, it's really easy for me to just grab the next chunk. Interesting. Like I've seen that kind of stuff permeate audit as well, but it still hasn't been as discrete chunks. It's kind of always had, like the ticket's been a level higher than that and maybe that's good, maybe that's bad, I'm not sure. I'm almost certain that someone like Bain or Mackenzie are doing this already. Like, they'd have to be. Yeah, really? Yeah, right. Well, it's just what you do with a bunch of juniors running around, right? It's a good way to get juniors to, yeah, do useful work for sure. Mm. It's very explicit. It's chunked up for them. It's ready to go. Mm, mm, interesting. Although I do now think back on uh, the constant refrain that Steve Levitt has on uh, on his podcast whenever he's hosting Freakonomics or his latest podcast, People I Mostly Admire, where he talks about when he went from grad school to working for, I think it was Bain. And his manager like said, 
you need to come up with a strategy for X. And he's like, I don't know anything about X. And he's like, that's why we hired you because you're smart. So maybe they yeah. do expect that of their juniors still. I'm not sure. Maybe they don't want to manage yeah. at that level. Yeah. Anyway, it'll be interesting to see whether it is worth permeating through the rest of society or not, or whether there's the software eats the world anyway. And it's, there are no businesses except software businesses in another 20 years. Yeah. We've covered that enough times. <laughs> maybe. Cool. Another thought on the whole interview was thinking about incumbents versus startups. So looking at can startups who are software first sure. ramp up faster and overcome the capital moat, essentially, that the incumbents have. Yep. And I was thinking about this and like maybe the last 10 years have been more favorable than ever to startups, even excluding software, simply because the cost of capital has diminished so massively. Yeah, capital's real cheap. Getting funding, in, just look at interest rates for anyone who doesn't know what I mean by cost of capital, essentially. It's like the returns you expect to get on a sum of money. Yep. So interest rates have dropped from, gee, they were 8-ish percent if, just before the 2008 crash. And what are they now? Wow. Like one? One, less than one. Yep. And when I say 8-ish percent, I mean like just on a term deposit that I as a, whatever I was, 18-year-old or something like that, 20-year-old, could go down to the bank and get a term deposit paying over 8%. Right. Cash rate is currently 0.1%. Yeah. So I think you'd struggle to get a term deposit at 1% That's now. Insanity. Uh, yeah. It was as high as 7.25% just before the GFC. There you go. Whew. So That's nuts. Sir. I think uh, refactoring that in my head, maybe the, uh, the startups have a bigger advantage against the power of scale than I was thinking about at the time. Yeah. You don't have all the craft and all the capital... You can just borrow for free off anyone. Yep. Wow. We live in interesting times. We do. Final thought on the interview was, like I never got to actually raise this in the conversation. So this isn't discussing what we actually directly talked about, but this was further on in the interview. Mark starts talking about like where the software industry needs to look for inspiration or whatever. And he starts talking about, oh, we need to go back to earlier writings and like the start of sci-fi. And I don't mean things like the foundation series in the fifties or something, you can go back even earlier to like the 1910s or something like that. And I'm like, feels like you're getting a bit decadent there, Mark. Oh feels no. Feels a bit stagnant. Oh no. Even the tech industry is stale and decadent. Yeah. Oh, dear. They're our last hope. Like if anything was a leading indicator of an industry getting stagnant, I think it is looking to the past for inspiration for the future. Yeah. That's grim. Typically mm-hmm. when one of the best futurists is, uh, is doing it. Yep. So, mm, mm, I think we just need more Tsishinlius or what, however you pronounce his name. Kixinlu. Kixinlu. Yeah. Yeah. He's fantastic. Yeah. Again, author of the three body problem. Those who aren't getting the references that we're putting down. Amazing book. Amazing trilogy. Amazing trilogy. If you want futurism, that's where it's at for just sheer quantity of ideas. I mean, if you want stuff that actually is kind of old, not super old, say mid 90s but feels very relevant to our days and you can handle a bit of a dry book. I would also recommend the Mars trilogy by Kim Stanley Robinson, because that feels no. like it could fit with the modern day pretty well still. I mean, I think they posit the Mars landing in like 2028 and that feels a bit of a stretch now, but you know, we're going to have to rename D Hank and Jonathan by 2028, I think. <laughs> cool. And then I've, I've got three more topics of feedback just to keep dragging this out. Ooh. Good, because I got nearly nothing. <laughs> so, first up, way back when, I can't remember when, 
in the early days of the podcast, I discussed a basic idea of funding journalism through prediction markets. And Scott Alexander from Astral Codex 10, one of our favorite writers, actually did a big write-up. Well, not a big write-up, but a moderate write-up about that very idea this week. So we'll put that in the yeah, show notes. Scott's going to do some big write-ups. When you say it's a big write-up by Scott, you got to... You know, it's got to mean something. It's got to mean like an hour or two of reading. Yeah, all right. Well, in the realm of Scott, it was actually quite brief. Yes, succinct. But for general readership, I would say it is moderate. Yeah, big data. It's good. Yeah, we'll check that in the show notes for sure. Yeah, for sure. So worth a read. And then I was listening to the 80,000 Hours podcast just yesterday, I think it was, with Alexander Berger, Berger from Open Philanthropy. And in it, well, at the very end of the conversation, 80,000 hours podcasts, by the way, tend to be like three hours, two to three hours. So, you know, when I say the end of the conversation. At least they're not 80,000 hours. <laughs> that would be too long. You know, by the time Rob Wiblin leaves this mortal plane, it might be 80,000 hours of podcast time. Well, I mean, it is his whole career, right? That's what 80,000 hours is a reference to, is how many hours you spend working during your career. Right? Exactly. Uh, so they started talking about organ donation because Alexander Berger actually donated a kidney to a random person back in like 2011 to just start one of those wow. like kidney trading chains to unlock a whole bunch oh. of people being able to, you know, continue to live by just having wow. an extra kidney in the chain because you need to be able to match with people like genetically or whatever. So yep. the organ doesn't get rejected. And he said, I will just put one randomly into the chain. I don't know anyone who needs one, but now I can unlock a whole bunch of people by donating to this person. Their spouse can now donate to a third person and their spouse can donate to a fourth person or whatever, like that kind of thing. Wow. God, that's amazing. So they were talking- Wow. Yeah, yeah, totally. They were talking about how inscrutable it seemed that you couldn't pay people as a reward for donating organs or that kind of thing. Yep. As we previously discussed on blood donation- and at the time, I struggled to come up with arguments against it. And of course, it's only when you're not in the conversation that you can think and be like, oh, here's a couple of arguments. So a couple of thoughts I had essentially on this topic, and, and I'm keen to get your feedback on this, Chris. I will buy your kidney. I don't think they're particularly strong arguments, but I'll, I'll make them nonetheless. Okay. First of all, by allowing payment for organs, we are potentially crowding out or raising the price for those who can't pay, Right. So who are unable to pay right now. So we would effectively be making it a more premium good, even though you think, you know, you'll bring more to the market. It's not necessarily true. So for example, like if no matter what happens, I'm going to get into a motorcycle accident in five years time and die. All right. Then in the situation where organ donation, I can't be paid for it. I'll still have yeah. two kidneys and they can go to whoever doctors want to prioritize in the chain. And it might be someone poor. It might be someone rich. Who cares? Yep. If yep. I can get paid for it, I might choose this year to donate a kidney to someone really, really rich. And then when I die in five years time, I'll only have one kidney. So that will exclude the poor person wow. from having access to that my second kidney. Feels very niche. That's interesting. I mean, 
you know, you can make that argument about anything that yeah. you pay for, right? We could give this away randomly to whoever wants it, but we have found that society works better when people pay for the things they want because it better expresses preferences. And you can say that rich people don't want a kidney any more than a poor person wants a kidney, but you can say that about anything, right? It's true. A rich people person doesn't want a mansion any more than a poor person wants a mansion. They just have the means to get it. So why do we give all the mansions to the rich people? It's like, you know, this is just the incentive structure of capitalism as we know it. And I think it generally works pretty well. Yeah, I, I, I would never have thought of the idea of like pre-selling your kidney prior to your motorcycle crash. Would your kidneys form part of your estate? <laughs> like, would your wife inherit your kidneys to donate slash sell on the open market as she wishes because you got in your motorcycle crash? <laughs> That's an interesting insight. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Right? Like. Would it obviate the need for life insurance as much? Would it be taxable? Motorcycle riders. <laughs> would it be taxable? Would it, would it be her sale or your sale? <laughs> Yeah, like what would be the base capital value of it? And like when it was realized, would the whole amount be taxable? Would I get a capital gains discount because I lived for more than 12 months? Who knows? Sure. What's the depreciation on these babies? <laughs> How big a drink away? <sighs> there you go. And the second thought I had on this was in the discussion, I kind of tuned out for a second and then I came back in and they had this turn of phrase like, if you got made an offer, you can't refuse thinking in terms of money. And then Rob's like, well, that sounds great. Like if you get made an offer, you can't refuse, then you got a really, really good price and you should be happy with that. And what yeah. it made me think, like an offer you can't refuse is commonly, you know, a quote from the Godfather. And it just made me think, if you make it legal to pay for organ donation, does it make it easier to hide illegally stealing someone's organ and just saying I'm going right. to pay them for it, right? You just extort it True out of them. intimidation or, or coercion or, yeah, however you want to get it out of them. Yeah, so it's just like it makes it easier because to extort. it becomes extort. less unusual. Exactly. I don't know. I have also, if I can add one to it, because I've heard this in another context, is it like it will plausibly reduce our sympathy for the poor sort of thing? It's like, oh, well, if you're that poor and you're always whinging about money, why don't you sell a kidney? I don't have to give you any <laughs> arms. I don't have to donate to any charity. It's like you still got both kidneys, buddy. There's a couple of years' rent. Don't come crying to me while you've got two kidneys. And that that starts to feel like a pretty negative societal <laughs> outcome. I would never have thought of that one. That is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? You can't whinge about your student oh, debt. Just sell please, a kidney, I need man. Money for, just sell a kidney. You've got two. You don't need both. Sell one third of your lung. Yeah, well, livers grow back, man. Come on. What are you doing? Yeah, you could be at the liver donating plan every other week. You say you've donated half your liver, you can donate another quarter. Come on. <laughs> so, yes, I like markets in many things. And perhaps I can see reasons why there should be an organ market. But there, there's, yeah, it still makes me squeamish for all the reasons it makes everyone squeamish. There you go. Hmm. By the way, if anyone was like going to tune into that 80,000 hours podcast just for that kind of discussion, go to like the last half hour. If you are super into philosophy... Goodness me, the effective altruist community just thinks like hardcore about philosophy. So, you know, that's great for the first two hours for me, but 99% of people aren't as into philosophy as I am. So probably just don't worry about that one. I am not as into philosophy as you are. I'm pretty into philosophy, but not as much as you are. Yeah. So there when you go. When you said you dozed off, do you think you dozed off for 79,997 hours? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I'm just sleepwalking through my career, man. 80,000 hours is a long podcast. It's too long. <laughs> Listeners, we will try to make it one hour for you. Failed last time, but we'll do better this one. Maybe. All right. Well, this will be just the two-hour podcast once every two weeks, and Brian will have to do just as much editing as ever. Nah, doubt it. Doubt it. I don't know. This is a big topic that we've got coming up for you, though. Cool. We got anything else? 
we promised, uh, I think, on the live show to try to work out why denim was blue. And like, I think in the seconds after the live show, before I don't know, we had another beer or whatever, I googled something and it's like, here's why denim's blue. And I'm like, quick, save that, put it. I'll read it later. I'm sure it's the answer. And then I finally read it prior to this podcast, and it's just nonsense. <laughs> it's like the sentence doesn't even make sense. I want to try to read out a bit of it. Blue dye was cho- uh, the ch- color chosen for denim because of the chemical properties of blue dye. Most dyes will permeate the fabric, but indigo will only stick to the outside of the threads. Then, when the indigo dyed denim was washed, tiny amounts of dye get washed away and the thread comes with them. The more denim was washed, the softer it would get, eventually uh, achieving that worn-in made just for me feeling. And then when it's finally time to part with your used pair, you could recycle or upcycle them with these ten other items. Like, this sentence has been written and rewritten by, like, five different authors and they're like, we've got to get some cross-linking and we've got to get some SEO in there and we don't have enough terms and it doesn't make any sense anymore. And this is everything that's wrong with the internet, right? <laughs> Modern writing... In general, yes. No. SEO-optimized journalism that we currently live with, those clickbaity articles, that is the problem with them. They're really bad. So essentially what I took from that is they're asserting that jeans are blue and blue-collar workers have blue denim because the color comes off as they wear in. I somehow don't think yeah, that's true. So you've got an <laughs> aesthetic marker of your stylistic choices. I don't believe it. <laughs> And they just clearly rewrote this last sentence so they could link to some other article they wanted without even thinking whether it made any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Yep. Who are you, author? Marissa Lalibert, you're a bad author. I don't like your article. I feel like I'm on Twitter giving hot takes and spitting flames. <laughs> I need to stop this. I'm sorry, Marissa. I'm sure you're a lovely person and it's just the incentives of the industry that you find yourself in. Yeah, and you probably no got feelings. like uh, a lot of stern talking to's from your editor about that one and... I feel for you, Marissa. You just you living in the I'm world. You got to deal with. You got to you got to respond to the incentives in front of you. But you know, maybe choose a different career if you can. <laughs> yeah, I just don't think you like this one. You got eighty thousand hours in your career. I'm sure you can do something more beneficial to the world. Maybe. Do you plan to do anything beneficial to the world with the rest of your career? Nah. All right. Since we're only doing one topic tonight, we better thank our patrons first, and of course our Ooh. listeners. You know, we love all the listeners, but most of all. We love the patrons. Thank you so much for your support. You go above and beyond. You give us great ideas to talk about. And we just appreciate everything you do for us. We do. And I would like to give a little, because we always do a call out to share or to like or to review or whatever. I want to call out for a few more emails, please, because normally I have a few different emails or messages. I think we got a couple, but I didn't write them down very well. Maybe this is a learning of the two-week cadence that I need to get better. But, but it would be lovely to get your feedback on this episode or any other. If you've got some thoughts burning a hole in your brain, it would be really nice to hear them. Someone actually stopped me in the work car park to give me some feedback, which essentially amounted to, well, you guys sure talk about some stuff, hey? (laughs) I mean, we do. That's the premise of the podcast. That's what we're doing here, talking about stuff, hey? So, if you don't want to just stop me in the car park at my office, you can contact us via email. Our emails are podcastaffix if you want to reach one of us or affixpodcast if you want to reach the other. But as always, we will not be telling you who is who. Yep, so... Always at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at, at AffixPodcast, nicely named Podcast Affix. Yeah, and I tried to Twitter a bunch of famous people and we got one share, so that was exciting. Oh, hooray. Not a new nice. share. Not oh. a big share, but still nice. They're sort of famous, I guess, probably. <laughs> I got no idea how to open this section, by the way. Do you want me to open it? <laughs> sure. Yeah, you can open it. Please do. <laughs> I mean, this is an article we have, in fact, referenced, I believe, a couple of times because it's such an interesting article. It sort of took the blogosphere by storm a little bit. It's called the Tricameral Legislature, and it is 
silly but also insightful. The idea is that most legislatures are either unicameral or bicameral, which means either there is one governing body which makes all the laws or there are two governing bodies. A Senate and a House would be typical in a Westminster-style system um, that must both agree to pass a law before it becomes enacted as legislation. And so this is proposing a tricameral legislature, specifically focused on the United States, but I think the ideas are somewhat generalizable, which has not been tried a little bit. Apparently the most recent time it was tried was during apartheid South Africa, and probably we can do better than that. Yeah, I think we've managed to stay away from structural things in the political system, like political science things, I suppose, generally pretty well in this podcast so far. Like we've talked about incentives and that kind of thing, but general political science, this is probably our first dip in the toe in the water. So this is from a blog called Slime Mold Time Mold. And to be honest with you, I should read more of their stuff. This is the only thing I've ever read from there. And it was, it's very funny. It's fun. Yes, I should subscribe. They also won or came somewhere in the top three for the Slate Star Codex book review competition. I think they got some oh, talent. Oh, cool. There you go. That competition went on forever. Yeah, it was too long. But I do want to read the top ones. Maybe I should actually try and read Slime Mold Time Mold's entry now that I don't have to read all 20, some of which are okay and some of which are really not. Yeah. So, yeah, essentially, the reason for bringing up the possibility of a tricameral legislature is, I presume, from looking at the current gridlock that seems to be in a lot of legislation, like especially in the US, very noted that Congress barely does anything and just about everything in government is done through executive orders these days. Yeah, yeah. Legislation doesn't seem to be the thing that you know, the USA can really do anymore. Yeah, pretty much you, you write a law and then it just gets completely blocked by, it just gets completely filibustered. Or alternatively, the like seats are just Democrats versus Republicans. It's just too close. You need a two-thirds thing for anything big or something like that, and it just gets blocked, and then you get debt ceiling yep, stuff. And you need both the, houses, and you're, it's regular, quite regular, it seems, in America that the Republicans will control one house and the Democrats will control the other, and so they say, well, if this is a Republican law, that there's no way we're voting it up, so then nothing happens. Yep. Just to, just to set the scene, he does contrast that to a unicameral legislature where there is only one governing body, that that can enter you know, the tyranny of populism where minority rights get completely trodden on because as soon as you have a 51% of the country wants X, then no one else can do anything. So the benefits of a bicameral legislature where you've got two houses is that at least minority rights can be defended. So states is how it works, I think, in the US that each state gets the same number of senators, but the house is chosen by population. So that means the smaller states still get a reasonably large say and can't just get run roughshod by the huge popular states, which is similar to how Australia works. Similar, yeah. One of I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but like uh, reading the whatever founding papers from James Madison and the other guys, one of the other theories about the Senate is like there's supposed to be more wisdom in the Senate. Like they're supposed to be the main veto people to be like, this is a good law, let's pass it or let's knock it back and tell the young whippersnappers to write something better next time because there's oh, yeah. actual like age limits. You can only be, what is it like? You have to be over 30 or something like that to be in the Senate. You have to be 35 to be a president. I don't know what the age limits on the Senate are. It could be. Yeah. I don't know. It's been a while since I read those papers. The Federalist Papers, that's the one, not the foundation. Oh, so fancy. But yeah, no, interesting. Like, yeah, they're trying to make sure that there's youth in writing legislation, I suppose, potentially, potential youth. And there's definitely wisdom in looking and approving laws. But to get back to this article, essentially, the hope would be by bringing in a third wing of the parliament, you could have basic vote to have two out of three wings gets it through. You don't have to have two out of two to get the law passed. 
you can have two. Yeah, which three. if they're picked differently still, then you would still have some of that benefit in protecting minority groups, but you would not have the absolute gridlock that the US system seems to be under at the moment. How's the gridlock in Australia? I don't really pay attention to Australia politics. It's not a thing we talk about much in Canberra. So It still comes up, but like because executive is so intertwined with legislature, it doesn't seem to be as big a problem. Right. But like definitely actually getting laws written and stuff. Just writing laws is hard. Sure. Better leave it to the lobbyists. They at least get paid to do it. Yeah, exactly. If you can just copy what they're doing, you know, it's just more efficient. All right. So the article like has a few interesting ideas and then a few just funny ideas. Like predominantly, this is just, it's a humor article. There's like a lot of stuff to it's chuckle at. It's a humor article. Way. I think it's got some, I think it makes some good points. But yes, it makes some very silly, silly ideas. So I don't know. How do you want to run this? Do we want to just go through these one by one and give our thoughts on it? Because that's how I made my notes. Yeah, I'm happy to go through these one by one. I think I don't have much to say on some of them, but uh, I have more to say on others, particularly down the list. Awesome. All right. So we'll just run through various structures, as Chris has outlined, to say you could elect this third wing of the government body based on different factors to you know spice things up, make sure that different groups are properly accounted for in building and passing legislation. So the first proposed group is looking to Lebanon for some guidance and saying we could have specific seats in this third parliamentary house. I've been struggling to frame this and describe it throughout this conversation, and I'm just going to say it's the third house of parliament. All right, I'm too Australian. Yep. I can't think of different houses. It's parliament. In- it's going to be a house of parliament. All right. So the third house of parliament. What have we got? The upper house, the lower house, and the party house. Right, sweet. So the party house, nice, nice. (laughs) Could be taking an idea from Lebanon and be based on different religions. So making sure that different religions are represented and make sure that, you know, minority religions aren't discriminated against by any laws. Yep, yep. Absolutely takes this, you know, protecting minorities idea of parliament quite seriously, that religious or racial minorities seem to be the most persecuted or the most recognisably persecuted groups. So this would make it very clear that they have a substantial say in their own country. Yeah. And got some good arguments like for it, as well as predominantly against it to be like, what do you do? Like how do atheists and agnostics get representation in this? Yeah. Choosing what counts as a religion that is valid for parliament feels a very, very risky move in, uh, you know, liberal democracy. Yeah. And like just validating that something is actually a religion is very risky in and of itself. Like not saying that Scientology is a cult, for example. Yep. Yep. Would Scientology get saints? I like the idea, will the chamber be taken over by Satanists? Because Satanists love using freedom of religions laws. Anytime anyone tries to do anything Christian in a federal institution, the Satanists will always come and say, well, we're just another religion of the United States. So now you have to have a goat head in your in your <laughs> parliament because you put the Ten Commandments up. So we yep. don't favor one religion over another. And yep. so I 100% expect that the Satanists would split into 10 different Satanist parties and just control the whole house within mm, a decade to get their act together because <laughs> they're quite organized. Yeah, so like presumably you would get seats allocated potentially based on how big a particular religion is in the country. You'd look at census figures or something like that to say, okay, well, it's 10% Christian, 5% X or whatever. You could. That would potentially get you back to the tyranny of the majority though. Yeah. We don't look at how big the states are when we assign senators. Each state just gets the same number of senators. It does, but then he does make the argument in this that you'd still have the people of other religions voting for that religion's representative so you'd still have muslims voting uh, for the christian true, representative true. so it could still be more that's an interesting one yeah maybe moderate thing moderate things a little bit yeah 
But most of all, like I was just thinking about this and it made me wonder, like, is this just baking in religion as a cultural force? Like I was reading John Stuart Mill the other day and was astonished by how much of his whole book on liberty is taken up with religious arguments about like why you shouldn't persecute people about this and uh, religion that and the biggest possible example I could give for any dispute on why we shouldn't judge people on morals or something like that is like you might feel really righteous about being a Protestant and you hate those Catholics. And I'm like, I just don't think people care as much about religion as they did even 20 years ago. And baking that in feels pretty dangerous. Yeah, did you see? I think it was Ross Dutat. Did uh, was it Ross Dutat or was it um, Tanner? Was talking about how long the culture wars are that you know religion seemed to be hanging on in the United States, but then suddenly just dropped off a cliff. Basically, a lot of people our age, I guess, were not brought up religious. Like you know, if you're on the internet in the early days, atheism was pretty big deal. Was a religion, I want to say. Yeah. Even though, when, you know, thirteen year old Chris would have been very very angry at you calling atheism a religion. Um, <laughs> And, you know, while they had to go to church with their parents, they had to go, but their minds were made up that religion wasn't real. It wasn't part of their life. And once they grew up and were not beholden to their parents anymore, they may have kept it for a little while for cultural reasons, but it's absolutely plummeting now. Yeah, totally. And if you look at the demographics, sorry, I'm just bringing up the chart myself here. Yeah, culture wars are long wars by Tanner Greer over at the scholar yeah. stage. And it's got the percent of people in the US who believe in God without a doubt. And it's just like silent generation, completely flatline, really high. Boomers, slightly lower, but still completely flat over the years. Gen X actually increased their belief in God without a doubt over the years. So that was surprising. But millennials and Gen Z have just completely cratered it. So like as time goes on, it becomes less and less relevant. So that just makes me think at a top line, baking in those kind of cultural forces into a third house of parliament, you couldn't see that kind of shift coming. Like religion seemed like the biggest cultural force for millennia of humanity's existence. Wow, Gen Z are really low in America, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're down to 30%. Well, <laughs> So, there you go. Wow. Wow. All right. Did you have much more to say on the religion thing? No, I mean, I would not support it because I'm not religious. <laughs> <laughs> Even enough. if there was an atheist house, I think it is a bad way to run a country. <laughs> Fair enough. Do, 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 do. Second section is Native Americans. Quick one. Yep. Which is very American specific, obviously. I do not think that, well, maybe we could give a third body of Congress to um, a body of Parliament, the party house to, you know, Native Australians, Aboriginals. Yeah, they were talking about having, I don't know if you're across this, since you say you're not really that into Australian politics. They were talking about having like a shadow wing of government that had literally no say, like no voting power in any legislation, but they had to overview it and have a like... I'm just thinking in like business terms, there's like the racy charts. So there's responsible, accountable, Ah, consulted, informed, and they were always consulted, but they'd never uh, responsible for any of the legislation. So it was like going to be this shadow. Having a voice in the room is like pretty important. Yeah. I think just being in the room where it happened, you know, you can have influence even if you don't have any legal or whatever power and everyone tries to just ignore you just by shouting things that are important to you. You can have an impact, I think. There you go. So that has come into play for Australia. So there you go. I think it would require a constitutional amendment, so very unlikely to ever happen. But, you know, they do have, I think it's five seats dedicated in the New Zealand parliament for Maori representation. Oh, really? Yeah, cool. So I don't know how they actually elect those. And I know we've got a couple of New Zealand listeners. So I'd be interested to get feedback on that. And Maybe they can know. write in and tell us how it works out. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us what the perception is on the ground. So I don't know. It's an interesting point. 
All right. And then the third category is honestly the most interesting category to me. I'm going to let you sure. do this one. All right. Well, I want to write it out the first couple of things. So it's a foreign only chamber. So there's an old joke that the president is mayor of the United States and dictator of the world. The president has little more than advisory power at home, but can more or less rule the globe with an iron fist. There's another old joke about making Israel the 50 per state, which is that they would eject on the grounds that then they'd only get two votes in the Senate. Classic, classic jokes. Yeah, so this is the idea that America should take its role as a superpower more seriously. And America, I mean, you know, its power has been waning since the 70s and there's always books about the end of America and ah, it's the rise of whatever else the country at the time. But it is still undoubtedly true that America is the hegemon of the world and they do not quite rule the world with an iron fist, but they're pretty close to it. Yeah, totally. Like my notes to myself on this was like, obviously, not really relevant for just about any state that isn't the hegemon, but it's genius for America. Yeah, I quite like the idea that like this is, this could be seen as not a purely altruistic thing that America has to give you the voice in the room. So, and they can just take it away at will. I'm not sure exactly how you would remove people because that creates complicated legislation things if you only let the one friendly country to your party, et cetera, et cetera. But like, imagine if Russia started trying to annex small bits of the Ukraine or whatever Russia wants to do this year, and America said, you know, we're going to kick you out of our parliament. You know how you like voting on our laws? We're going to kick you out. And that is a potentially a pretty huge carrot slash stick that America could use for international diplomacy. Yeah. So basically the idea is that there would be, I don't know, 192 or 200 different seats in this house of parliament, the party house. The party house. And every individual country recognized by the US would get a representative in there. So, yeah, kicking a representative out would be quite the move from the hegemon, that's for sure. Yeah. And, like, how much would North Korea give to get a say in America's laws? And yeah. presumably, you know, influence on foreign policy, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, totally. I think it does face a similar problem to religion, which is, like, simply by actually saying that somewhere as a country gives it it has implications on its legitimacy, I suppose it is. But, you know, we sure, I feel like we've, we've sort of baked that problem in after World War II. World War II seems to be the last big time where countries were allowed to change borders. It seemed to happen all the time prior to that. Germany was formed and the Austro-Hungarian Empire split and blah, 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 blah. And then after World War II, we're like, was well, it really bad? We're going to just stop it. And that means all the countries are set now. And you talk to some of the people in Europe, in Catalonia or in Britannia or, you know, they're just states now rather than they, they feel like they should be countries. And they're like, we're not allowed to go to war anymore because we decided in World War II we're part of France and that's that. Yeah, places like Western Australia, you know. Places like Western Australia, yeah. <laughs> so, Tough yeah, one. Definitely. I, I honestly think that this article is worth reading just for this one section. Like it's funny and it's insightful. It's nice. It's good. Cool. Next section, we got age bracket. And I thought this was also kind of interesting. There's a couple of different ideas of how you could have different allocations of seats within this House of Parliament based on age brackets. You could do it just by decade. So, you know, there's a 20 to 30 year old rep. There's a or whatever. There's 10 20 to 30 year old reps. There's 10 31 to 40 year old reps. There's 10 51 to 60 year old reps, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. I do wonder like how risky is it that all the 80 plus year olds, like not all, but like a few of them die while they're I mean, seen. each year, a few of them would probably die. I actually, I want to go back to the premise of this. So, the lead paragraph is a problem with most governments is the tyranny of the old over the young. This is perverse because young people will live to see the full consequences of laws to pass today while old people may not. What do you actually think of this? Because this gets bended about quite a bit. And I can sort of see it when, you know, old men declare wars and young men have to fight them. That when you're not directly paying the consequences for something, you can, you can more easily say this is a good idea. But do you actually believe this? Like, do you feel like older people have any wisdom that are useful for younger people? And do you really think that 
our parents' generation or their parents' generation is just selfish and they're like, oh, whatever, it doesn't matter. I'll let the world burn. I don't care about my grandkids. I don't see any of that. I'm going to say there's going to be pockets of truth to it that people look out for themselves in a certain way and will vote in their own interests. I will say I mostly think that the people that I respect who vote don't think about themselves. They think about their voting for the people who are ruling over everyone. Yep. But I don't know how true that actually holds to the general voting public. Maybe I should read a couple of books on that. I don't know. I know uh, Brian Kaplan's got a good book, Myth of the Rational Voter, uh, yeah. that I should perhaps read. I have not read that. I would like to read that too. But yes, like 20-year-olds are heads. I was a yeah. dickhead. Yeah, yeah, they're very dumb. <laughs> they're really stupid. <laughs> like even the smart ones just don't have the wisdom, I suppose it is. Yeah, they're just very ignorant. Yeah. More than stupid. Like I say. Science. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you going to have to bleep that three yeah. or four times? <laughs> I'm definitely. Okay, very good. So I, I find the idea interesting of an age-bracketed parliament because you would, I mean, there are different cultures between different age groups and they have different priorities, which I think is important and perhaps that level of representation. But the core premise of it, that the problem is that there's all these old people and they're really just legislating for the next 10 years and they don't have any care about legacy or patriotism or any other reason why you'd want to run a country. They're just in it to make their next 10 years as luxurious and hedonistic for themselves as possible. I don't buy it for a second, basically. Yeah, I think that's generally true. I think the cases of people who are those out-and-out psychopaths in it for themselves entirely and not looking to get along, they exist, but they're incredibly rare, much more rare than you would believe. Possibly they wield disproportionate power to how rare they are because they chase it so shamelessly. Yeah, but even so, I don't think it's I do think they're quite rare. Yeah. No, I don't Um, think it's even a lot of the power. I think there's all all the reasons why politics is generally dysfunctional, and I don't think it's because of evil people. Totally. I do wonder, like, the mechanics of that kind of system. Like, do the votes get tallied up in age brackets or are the representatives yeah, I reckon only in the, the age brackets? I reckon only the 20-year-olds can, can vote for the 20-year-olds. I think that's fair. Yeah. And then, like, I wonder personally what my experience would look like in that world where I turned 30. Would I still vote for the same party as when I was in the 20 to 30 bracket or would I be a shift to a different party because... There's a completely different representative who's aged out of the bracket that I was in. So sure. I wonder what that would look like from a cohort effect. It'd, it'd be fun. Yeah, interesting dynamics for sure as the cohorts moved back and forward. Anthony Green and uh, who's the other guy? Nate Silver. They'd have a lot of fun on the on the numbers side of it. Oh, they'd love it. I would love them loving it. Oh, yeah. And then it's also got like just tagging on at the end. It has an interesting idea on you could have different seats in the parliament but just have a limit on the total number of <laughs> years yes, that of could represent years. those seats so presumably you're doing proportional voting where you vote for a pool of candidates and three out of the 10 people who ran or whatever get to represent yep it feels really hard to do that as a voter to tally up the numbers but maybe you vote for an even bigger pool and you get like a total pool of 10 and then that 10 that group of 10 people just have to go all right well we've only got a hundred years worth of life to spend on the votes to go to vote on this thing. So Yep. So we're gonna send an eighty year old and twenty year old or we're gonna send two fifty year olds or Yeah, exactly. It's it's an interesting idea. I think the mechanics of it would be insane, but you know, fun to play with. Yep. Next one is near and dear to my heart. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Height. I just take the hundred dollars people. They're the parliament. We did warn you that some of these were silly listeners. I don't really know how they have much to say about this. Like, clearly, I'm not tall enough to get into Parliament by being the tallest, but I'm pretty tall, so maybe tall people are going to look out for me. 
maybe tall people need to look out, start getting taken down. Maybe tall people need to, well, we need to look out for low doorways, <laughs> particularly when traveling in Japan, that's for sure. Yep. The next one was the party breaking chamber, which was an interesting one. And the only, so essentially the premise of this chamber is there has to be a 50 50 split, or each voting district gets two representatives, one of each major party. Yeah. I think that's how it works. Yeah, yeah, that seems to be how it works. Every state sends two representatives, one from the Democrats, one from the Republicans, is the proposal. So this House is guaranteed 50 Democrats, 50 Republicans. And for our Australian listeners who are maybe not aware of this, maybe you all are, and you can just tell me that I'm wrong, but it is less common in the US to always vote against party lines. I think in Australia, there is a very strong norm. I don't know if it's enforced by law, but there's an extremely strong norm of always voting along party lines, right? Like There's, 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 there's the actual debate. party rules within the Labor Party to say if you vote out of party line, you get kicked out of the party. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, it's quite- quite. I don't know if it holds in Liberals. I think the Liberals are allowed to do it, but Labor's like, no, you're out. Yeah. So. And they do occasionally have what they call a conscience vote, where you can vote however you feel like, but that is by far the exception, not the rule. Whereas in the US, it's much more common to get a coalition of the most left-leaning Republicans or the most right-leaning Democrats to try to support whatever mid-centrist kind of legislation. Yeah. So, what I'm trying to say is that this party house would not be completely useless. Totally. And the theory behind it is like, because you have people out in the population who might be Democrats still voting for a Republican representative for their district, you're going to get a more yep. moderating force as well. Same thing, vice versa. Yes, that would be the hope. So, you know, maybe there's some hope for this one. I like tried to think about what would happen in a country like Australia if we tried to bring in something like this. And maybe the only way you could make it work would be to, again, have kind of proportional representation in the seats for the parties based on the previous election. Yeah. So, like, you have it offset by a year? I don't know. Yeah, this has the same problem with the religious one, right? In that it just locks in place the current parties. Yeah. And Americans seem very locked in just due to the nature of their game. And Australia's pretty locked in. It's been Lib Nats versus Labor for as long as I can remember. But we had the Democrats for a while and the Greens are a growing force. So, there is more ability for the Australian party system to ebb and flow. So, the idea of just like it's always 50-50 between the two major parties just locks those parties in place forever, which I don't really like. Same. Agreed. Cool. Next one is animals. Ha! Animal house. <laughs> That's the whole joke. <laughs> That's the joke. Robot house! That's just, <laughs> That's just an excuse to make that joke. Uh, cool. And then we've got nomination, which is an interesting one. My voice is honestly getting tired. Chris, can you run me through this one? Oh, man, we're only 54 minutes in. Right. There's another old problem with democracy, which is you can only elect the people who are running for office. These people are naturally power hungry. And because you can tell that because they're running for office. Who would vote for that guy? So, this is the idea is you can elect someone who hasn't decided to run. So, someone generally famous. Maybe you're just going to vote for Oprah. Maybe you're going to vote for Cory Doctorow. Maybe you're going to vote for Tyler Cowen. He seems to know stuff and read really fast at the very least. He would be able to read through all the legislation. I'm pretty sure on that one. He wouldn't be just handing it off to his lackeys to do for him. So, I think the idea is you elect clever people as nominators and then the nominator chooses whoever they think would be best for the job. Pretty much. It's kind of like a weird thing. So, it's not quite a complete lottery. That's the next section. But this is yep. saying you can vote for whoever, then you trust them to install the right person for your district or whatever to you know run things. And my biggest problem with this is this is actually part of the US constitution. <laughs> Um, the entire really? way that the president gets elected is each state has a uh, defined elector 
and everyone yes, is actually true. voting for that elector. Not the president. And within 20 years of the constitution being written and enforced in the US, it just completely devolved to no one pays any attention to the electors unless there's like some, you know, conspiracy theory about someone stealing the election. Yep. Yep. It wasn't that fast, was it? It's just like you're just voting for your party. I had heard that it was because, you know, telecommunications literally didn't exist at the start of America. So by sending an elector who would actually physically ride their horse to Washington, if by the time they learned in Washington that the person that they thought they were going to vote for had done some heinous crime or he just met him at the pub and he's like, this guy's kind of a dickhead. Now you got to bleep me too. He could vote for someone else. Whereas obviously in the age where the presidential candidates are campaigning directly on television, you feel like you can get a bit more of a feel for them on your own. Yeah, I don't know. I just, that whole concept seemed to disappear by the 1820s because I was reading about, obviously reading things like by Alexis de Tocqueville and things like that where they talk about the US electoral system. And I think it might have even been... Um, Who's the guy? Hamilton. Oh, yeah. Might have even written about it like around the turn of the century, like the 19th century. Just completely ignoring the electors and being like people just, they vote for the demagogues who are out there talking and they're completely ignoring this whole complicated system that they set up with electors and stuff like that. Damn. Best land plans. So, sorry to say, as cool as nomination sounds, I just don't think- No, I think it would get politicized immediately. And I mean, how do you force the person to do the job? Like- if they're not volunteering themselves, they probably don't want the job. So if you're nominating them, what, what are they going to do when they just go home? And like, I'm just going to go back to being Oprah because I'm good at being Oprah. I'm not going to do this. <laughs> yeah. Goodbye. Like this is kind of my problem with the next section or the last section. What's the difference between normal people and true lottery? Normal people, well, because it's like, you know, you choose some populist way of choosing it. So it's the 100 most viral TikTok stars from the last year. Or Right. Okay. So, yes, the second last section is normal people. <laughs> Which is based on something <laughs> random. Yeah, it's, it's very, it's a, it's a joke. It's a big joke. A chain reader of the best dolphin trainers. <laughs> okay, sure, sounds great. Free Willy and all that. Yep. And then we get to yeah, true lottery, which is just you completely draw at random via I don't know social security numbers or something like that to say nope, this person is in is a representative in yep for the, the next party four house. years in the party house. And you have two-year overlaps so that there's not, you know, 100 brand new people who have no idea what they're doing. You have 50 who have learned the ropes a little bit and 50 who are new and fresh. I think Malcolm Gladwell did a whole podcast on this, right? Yes. But the thing I liked about Malcolm Gladwell's podcast idea on this was people had to still nominate themselves to go into the pool to get drawn, right? Oh, really? Okay. Whereas this doesn't address that. This is like just it could be, I don't know, some random six-year-old or something, I guess. And it's just going to yoink you out of your regular life and you have to go serve in this parliament. And it's like, but what if I don't want to? I mean... <laughs> Can I opt out? I sort of like this idea. It comes back to my favourite. Is it Vonnegut? I don't know. They've already had a Douglas Adams quote in here, so that also won my favour. Yeah, it's Vonnegut. We are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful what we pretend to be. I think once you're thrown into the parliament and you're leading a, you know, the most powerful nation on earth, or Australia, you would start to take that pretty seriously. I, I agree, but like, I just, I feel like the problem with this is just how efficient is it going to be having more people writing the laws anyway? And if you're forcibly taking someone out of their comfortable life and saying, no, you don't have the liberty to choose how you spend your life working and, I don't know, being a super movie star or being a janitor, you've got to come yep. work in this parliament. Hey, that's not great from like the grounds of liberty. And to be, it might be an even bigger hit to the overall efficiency in the economy 
overall. I don't know. It could be. Yeah, I like maybe the idea that you can back out, but not cut out of nomination, that your name is going to be published and you have to sort of say that you don't want it. I want to be yeah, a pressure I like that on the, the every person, right? Yeah, like play into the endowment effect, right? Like, yeah. So the endowment effect is like you value something more when you already own it than when you don't have it and you, you'd have to pay for it. Famously, one of the... I don't know how well this replicates. Studies of the uh, endowment no, effect get is... replication crisis. Damn. Uh, uh, I don't know. I just say that about everything, everything gets in psychology. Crisis. Crisis. Sure. It's an entirely made up field. We know nothing. Essentially, like they have this experiment where everyone in the class gets given a coffee cup or a really fancy pen. Yeah. And then they have to put values on what they would buy for the other. And the people who have the coffee cup value it way, way more than the people who have the pen. So that's kind of the endowment effect. Yep. I liked, I think... Um, Dan Ariely did one where he interviewed a bunch of people who had gotten tickets to the big game, like the final game of the university football team. And the tickets were by lottery for students who had to enter. And the people who won, it was like, how much would you sell the ticket for? And it's like, there's no price. This is going to be the culmination of my four years at uni. And I'm like a huge supporter and blah, blah, blah. You would have to pay me $10,000 to buy this ticket. It's, it's the most important thing in the world. And the exact same people who had entered the exact same lottery, but didn't win it. And we we're just going to go to the bar to watch. It's like, how much would you pay for that ticket? It's like, oh, I don't know. It would have been cool to go. And it's kind of a bummer not to, but like, I don't know, a hundred bucks, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. You've convinced me. You can't opt out of being nominated at all or being drawn from the hat, but like the pure chance of being like, you know what? I've been given this opportunity. It's been specifically yeah, granted to me. You can back me. down. If you're really against it, you can back down, but you can't opt out of ever being told that you have the opportunity. Yeah. You're more likely to dream about the potential that you could bring to the world and this is your one shot and blah, blah, blah. Yep. All right. You saw like, me. It's a loss aversion thing. Just while we're on this, I love the idea. You know, you've, you've heard they do these vaccine lotteries in the United States to help encourage people to get vaccinated. Yep. I think it's a Stephen Levitt idea that just everyone should be entered in the lottery, but you can only win it if you get proof of vaccination. Yes, so love that one. They're going to call your name out and it's like, you won a million dollars. Just show us that you've been vaccinated. Oh, but I haven't. Uh, no million dollars for you. <laughs> and then all their friends ring them up and be like, congratulations on the million dollars. Congratulations, like, you did it. Well. Oops. <laughs> not quite. Sorry. Yeah. Love that idea. That's, that's a very nasty idea that sounds incredibly effective. <laughs> He's got a few of those actually sprinkled throughout the um, People I Mostly Admire podcast. He's a smart man. Stephen Levitt is that kind of thinker. Yep, absolutely. Very good at unpopular ideas. Yes, he, I mean, he seems to be quite drawn to them. He's like, I know when Republicans hate my ideas and Democrats hate my ideas, then I'm really onto something. <laughs> yeah, something that'll get people interested in reading anyway, not necessarily something that'll be implemented. Well, that's true. I mean, he's an entertainer sometimes. Definitely. Cool. All right. So that's it, folks. We went through all the categories. What did we have just to rattle it off again? You know, make sure that you remember it for the test. We had religion. <laughs> we had Native Americans, the foreigner only chamber, the age bracket, height, the party breaking chamber, party breaking party house, animal house, nomination, normal people, true lottery. And that was it. So, Chris, did you have any ideas for a potential? Do third I have party? any ideas? Oh, wow. God, I feel like this has been strong. I mean, this is the most obvious question in the world, but uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> How would I elect a third chamber? I mean, you know, I like technocrats. Could we just work it in that you have to have a bunch of published papers in political science first or something? Would you get like the most technical technocrats? 
Like the problem is the same thing as a lot of these is that it would be immediately politicized and you get a bunch of junk papers turned out. But if you had the paper with the most citations in whatever discipline or whatever journal, then you're nominated to the House and you get the real, you know, hardcore economists, not just advising ministers and whatever, but actually being able to be in the seat of power and make decisions for themselves. Yeah, I guess you're just shifting them from being lobbyists to being in the power themselves, maybe. Or public servants, yep. Yep, or public servants, good point. Actually... uh, be a different result or not. Yeah. Like my idea was similar in terms of it would probably just be moving people from lobbying to being in the parliament, which was have it represented by like industry. So you look at the share of GDP Mm -hmm, each industry mm -hmm. had over the last three years for the election in the fourth. And you go, you know what? Mining, you actually get to have 30% of the seats in this house of parliament. Entertainment, you get one. It's like the kind of thing that could... uh run away with itself a little bit because once you have 30% of the power to favour your own industry and arguably an explicit mandate to do so, probably next election you're going to get 40% and then Maybe. 50% and then Australia's just going to be one big mine. I wonder like how that would actually play out because you still have to have two thirds so you can't just completely steamroll it but I guess you can just pick off your targets more That's effectively true. that That's way. That's true. But it'd be fun. It's a fun idea. That is an interesting one. It's a, it's a big business idea for sure. All right. We're the Big Business Podcast. That's what we're all about. One day we're going to actually review that book. <laughs> no, we'll just reference it every time. Every time. Every time. Ba-da-ding. Ba-da-ding. I love it how we don't do the Hello Internet thing, but we still do the Hello Internet. I was just about to make that comment. <laughs> yep. It's just Hello such Internet. a great When's sound. the last Hello Internet? Is it over a year ago? It's probably over a year ago. No, it's got to be like two years since the last Hello Internet. Is it that long? Wow. I reckon. Yeah, right. I'm going to look it up right now, just because I can. No, there you go. It was only a year ago. February 28th, 2020. Yeah. Wow. Just before lockdowns. Just before lockdowns. Must have been lockdowns happen and Gray's like, nah, you know what? Not doing it. Too much on. Maybe they always used to record in person. We just never knew. When they couldn't anymore, they stopped. Maybe. Once they're both vaccinated, they'll start again. That is perhaps a possibility. I don't know. <sighs> okay. You know what time it is, folks. It's, it's coffee, coffee bedtime. Trying to do a harmony there. Haven't been to singing lessons for three weeks, so it's all shot. I'm ruined. I actually listened back to myself like properly trying to sing through a full song, and I'm like, man, I actually do need to have singing lessons. Oh, no. They're very fun. I do enjoy them a lot. I can hit the notes and I can hold notes, but like I break in between and can't choose the right. I don't there's know. A of, there's a lot of technical. Oh, yeah. The right octave is tricky. I'm getting better at that. There's just a lot of technical stuff with where you breathe and holding the different notes and preparing different phrases and ending syllables and all sorts of stuff. It's very it's interesting. It's more intellectual than I ever anticipated that it would be. And I enjoyed it a lot. All right. I got no ideas for a coffee bed. I'm sorry. I can't. Like, oh, well, we're doing, when's the next Hello Internet episode? You've inspired me. I always like completely fail to prepare and then spend the whole episode panicking, barely listening to you while you're talking to while I'm just like, can I make a coffee bed out of this? Can I make a coffee bed out of this? So, when will the next episode of Hello Internet be? Oh man, now I have to figure out how to edit that whole like conversation in about Hello Internet. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> All right, well, I hope you enjoyed that, listeners, because that conversation was not intended for the podcast. Um, uh-huh. When's the next Hello Internet? Can I say never? Oh, by what date? So you can say never, but I'm going to say, you know, if there if hasn't happens been before one, the by use, if yeah. it happens by year 2100, if you're going to say never, then I win. Yeah. But you can push me lower than that. <laughs> okay. Um, it's a tough one. 
Gray is just such an inscrutable man. He is. It's a mystery, an enigma. Should we bother explaining Hello Internet to anyone who's trying to listen? Nah, it's just a fun podcast. We're going to link it. It's the quintessential two guys talking podcast. It is. It's where we get all our self-referential jokes from. Definitely an inspiration for this, I'd say. What would I put the probability on one coming out in the next year? Probably 20%. 20%. Yeah. You're probably right. So then I, I just don't know how to turn that into a like proper bet date. Because I feel like if they don't have one this year, they still will have like a reunion special or something in like 2025. Uh, that's an interesting one. Yeah. When did it start? I wonder when it started. Because I do agree. Now that it's been gone for a year, I'm like, mm, the chances of this coming back are very, very low now. Yeah. When did it start? When would a reunion special be? It started on the 1st of February, 2014. So okay. I'm so going to say... 2024. Yeah. 1st of January, 2024. It's going to be... No, actually, I'm going to say it before Christmas 2023, just in case. Before Christmas 2023. Because they used to do Christmas episodes where they'd like watch a Star Wars or something like that. Sure, sure. Now, the tricky thing about this bet is I either have to take the high side and say there won't be one by then. Yep. Or push you lower and say, I think there will be an episode. What are we saying? 2023. Hmm. I think there will be an episode close. in 2022. Yeah, it's not very far away. All right. You can take the low side still. I'm happy with that. Of 2023? Yeah. Okay. Or do you want to take the All high right. side? Nah, I think I'm good on the low side. I reckon there'll be an episode next year. Although I'm not confident about it. And I'm also just going to say, can I put a stipulation that an episode has to be longer than like five minutes? Yeah, sure. Yep. Cool. It's not just something pops up in the feed randomly. Yeah. Grey doesn't just happen to be in Australia and they have like a coffee at the Mighty Black Stump. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. The Mighty Black Stump. Yep. Half an hour at least. Right. Good deal. All Half right. an hour episode before Christmas 2023. Oh, what a short-term bet. All right. What's the news from Diablo 2? Oh, my God. Like, seriously, the oh last two weeks have been insane for the amount of world really? records that have been happening. Wow. Like, if I go to Diablo.run, fresh records doesn't even cover the last two weeks, and it shows, like, 10 Whoa. different records that have happened. Wow. Has there been new tech discovered, or are people just really excited to be in lockdown, or...? Like, I don't get it. It feels like there was a similar wave this kind of time last year where it's European summer and then for some reason the Europeans don't want to go outside. I don't understand that at all. But, you know, I would understand not wanting to go okay. outside, you know, in the times of the pandemic. But, yep. no, everyone's decided to just knuckle down. Like, Boxer Kabaddi has come back from not playing Diablo 2 at all for like nine months and he's gotten a record on the Druid, wow. taking it away from... Kano, holy cow, I've actually got a... It's a hardcore record as well, so I'm going to have to commentate that. Yes, because you're the hardcore record commentator guy. That's what I do. Is that your niche? I commentate hardcore P1 normal world records in Diablo, apparently. Oh, okay, cool. Cool, Boxer was very nice to me as well when I was doing that and reaching out to him, so I feel like I owe it to him. That's nice. Yeah, no, there's just like records after records here, man. So it's all been happening. I think like they stopped doing the race series. So maybe people stopped getting distracted by that and actually wanted to push themselves harder on doing world record grinds rather than just being like, you know what? I can get my Diablo fix on the weekend when we do this big race. Yep. But yeah. So Indrek has taken back second place on the leaderboard from McCalb for the runners with the most records. Ooh, exciting. Bender still reigns supreme at the top, but you know, there's some dynamism there. So everyone's getting yeah, involved. Cool. But it's just nose to the grindstone, just like grinding out, trying to get the lucky maps, you know, trying to eke out small optimizations. There's no big change in the scene. It's just a lot of work. It's just a lot of work. 
Yeah. What's more exciting? Is it the grinding a lot of work or is it exciting when they get swap casting or new techniques or that kind of thing? To be honest with you, I like races the most. Yeah, right. It's a tricky one. Yeah, I like races the most, but very close to that is actually watching fresh new world record runs. But I hate watching the grind for it. Like the grind just gets very right. boring these days because it's just you play for five minutes and reset. Better yep. than some like Super Nintendo or whatever people who are grinding and like miss one frame perfect trip and then reset after Ooh. 30 seconds. But, you know. Yep. And then third would be them experimenting with new technique because I actually prefer watching that incorporated with the grind. Okay. Like if someone's All just right. figuring out how to wave skip and they're just doing that over and over again, that is even more repetitive than grinding. So Right. It's once they've sort of mastered it that it's interesting. Yeah. So it's a bit of a loss for me personally that this race series isn't going on anymore every weekend. But at the same time, I'm not staying up until 1.30 in the morning every Saturday. <laughs> so. You are into your sports, man. You're a sports guy. <laughs> apparently. Apparently so. Amazing. My son started watching um, AFL this week, so... I don't know. That oh, was really? fun to sit on the couch with him too. Cool. Do you watch AFL? I used to. I used to a bit. Yeah, right. And you're watching it with him, I take it? Yep. Although he can only- Cool. It actually works out pretty well because he can only really have the patience to watch a quarter at a time. And if it's a boring game, he's like, I'm not interested in this whatsoever. So it forces me to turn the TV off and just go away. So. All right. Fair enough. Nice filter. Beauty. Cool. All right. That's it. That's our show. Nice hanging out with you all. I burn through the podcasts. That's why I can listen to the 80,000 hours podcast. Yeah. Now that I'm not writing so much, I do not burn through the podcasts. I only listen to you and I. That's the only one you have to listen to. It's the best one. All right. Good. We got our ending clip.